Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to Acts chapter 5. Acts 5, we'll look at verses 1 to 11. Happy Memorial Day weekend to you. As I think about Memorial Day, I think of the many women and men who have served our country faithfully. Obviously, the celebration, the remembrance is of those who have given their lives. I grieve when I hear like the manager of the Giants who has decided again now to kneel when our national anthem is playing. I think that's an individual who has no idea of the sacrifices made by men and women, their families, and the like. And some of you have made those sacrifices, you've served, maybe you even have loved ones who have died in combat, and we are grateful, and we ought to be grateful for the nation we live in. Yes, we have some challenges, no doubt, but what an blessed nation that we are a part of, and we ought to honor that and be grateful for that. Let's pray. Father God, uh, there is a lot to be thankful for, to live in this country with the blessings that we have been afforded, the freedoms that we have been entrusted with. Father, we would readily confess that we have not always treated the freedoms well or shown you the honor and centrality that you deserve. And yet we're thankful that we live here and that we can gather together as believers and help us to be grateful people and to acknowledge you, the creator and the giver, as James says, of every good and perfect gift that comes down from you, the father of lights. Father, as we continue to look at the book of Acts, we ask that you would take your inspired and errant word and apply it to our lives, challenge us and encourage us. And Father, even today as we talk about a lack of veracity, truthfulness, integrity, which certainly permeates our world and even our land, we ask that you would impress upon us the need to be people of integrity for your glory and for our betterment. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Undoubtedly, some of you read Patterson and Kim's book. It's now three decades old, The Day America Told the Truth. If you read it, it was written by scholars. Their statistics were gathered in a scholastic manner, and they had some stark things to say about the integrity, or actually lack of integrity, that permeates our land. Some of the things they said, and I've updated some of their statistics, you'll hear when I do that, but one of the things they noted was that 13% of Americans believe that the Ten Commandments are still valid, all ten today. 
I would have loved it if they had followed up with a second question. I realize that some evangelicals, some Catholics believe that nine of the 10 are repeated in the New Testament and honoring the Sabbath is not. I happen to disagree with that. I think all 10 are found in the New Testament and all 10 are absolutely valid today. But I wonder if that would have changed the statistics slightly. It's remarkable to me that only 13% of Americans hold to the Ten Commandments. 32% of Americans claim to be evangelicals. 23% of Americans claim to be Roman Catholic. 17% of Americans are part of the mainland Protestant church. 2.4% of Americans are Jewish. That would be 74.4% of Americans that ought to embrace readily the Ten Commandments because all of us hold the Ten Commandments in common. But what they actually found was not that we have trouble with one of the ten. They actually found that the average American said that if you hold six or seven, it's a potpourri, you get to choose. Six or seven, you're doing really well. The day America told the truth. They also found that 91% of Americans regularly lie or admit to lying. Actually, the latest poll in the United States, 2016, 96% of us say that we regularly lie. 85% of us lie to our parents. 75% of us lie to our closest friends. We lack integrity. They also found that for a large amount of money, $10 million, one in four would walk away from their marriage and one in four say they would walk away from their family in its entirety for $10 million. For a substantial payday, 7% said they would commit murder. In 2016, in the state of Colorado, 36% said they would commit murder for a substantial payday. And yet we look at the results of murder. We look at Texas with two teachers and 19 children. We look at Buffalo with 10 families that are ravaged and we say, why would anyone consider taking an innocent life of someone made in the Imago Dei in the image of God? 50% say that they would take unauthorized breaks at work if they could do so without being caught. When Kim and Patterson did their work, the average day saw employees stealing $16 million. Today, that's $110 million each and every day stolen by employees from their employers. We clearly have a problem with integrity. But it's not just an American problem, it's a worldwide problem. We could find similar statistics in most, if not all, countries. And yet if we take the Bible seriously, God takes a lack of veracity, a lack of integrity, very seriously. Think of John chapter 8, 44. It says, your enemy, the devil, the devil speaks through us. 
He says that when we lie, we speak not our native language, but the native language of the devil, who is the father of all lies. That's actually what John 8.44 says. When you and I lie, we're not speaking our native language, our native tongue. We're actually speaking the language of Satan himself. We are doing the work of Satan when you and I are less than truthful, when we tell a white lie, a polite lie, some kind of lack of integrity we are speaking for Satan. Now today's text is about more than just lying, but it certainly is about that. Let me begin in Acts 5. I want to read verses 1 to 11. But a man named Ananias, word means God is gracious, with his wife Sapphira, the word means beautiful, these two did not live out their name and culture. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back. That is a very technical term found exactly three times in Scripture. We'll talk about that technical term. With his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said... Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back, that's that technical word again, for yourselves, part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived or contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last and great fear came upon all those who heard of it. And young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife Sapphira came in, not knowing what had happened. She doesn't know that her husband Ananias is dead. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet, breathed her last, and the young men came in, and they found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now before you and I examine the text, I think we're going to need to back up to look at the last two verses of chapter 4. We understand that every word is inspired by God. Inspiration is what we read about in Peter 1.21 where the Holy Spirit carries along the spiritual writers to say exactly what God's Spirit desires them to say. That's inspiration. Every word, Jesus said, not even a jot or tittle, the smallest of markers in the Greek language, not even those will pass away. These words matter. But what does not matter are chapter breaks and versification. They're not inspired. They're added later by editors so that you and I can navigate the Bible. And actually, it's the last two verses of chapter 4 that give us the setting for chapter 5. So allow me to read verses 36 and 37. Thus Joseph, 
who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is incredible generosity. He has a piece of property, he goes to his realtor, he unloads the piece of property, he takes the funds and he lays it at the apostles' feet. And because of this, and I think probably other acts as well, we read a little bit about Barnabas in a number of places. He is just an encouraging guy. They decide to give him a new nickname. They're gonna call him Barnabas. Now we're used to nicknames. Maybe you grew up with a nickname. Maybe it was one you liked, maybe it wasn't, I don't know. But we know about nicknames. I'm going to try you out. I'm going to throw out some nicknames. You tell me who they are. Mark Twain. Samuel Clemens. J-Lo. Jennifer Lopez. Right. The Dopey One. Albert Einstein. Who would have known? The Chairman of the Board. Frank Sinatra. Are they putting them up? Oh, they're, hel they're helping you too easy. Okay. <laughs> the great one. Wayne Gretzky, right? Hammer and Hank. Hank Aaron. Yeah, the boss. Bruce Springsteen. The queen of soul. Aretha Franklin. Yeah. You paid the person in the back. They gave you all the answers. <laughs> then there's the nickname... In chapter four, right? The nickname is Barnabas, son of encouragement. Now we're told quite a bit about Barnabas. We're told that he is a Levite from the land of Cyprus, which is an island in the Mediterranean. As a Levite, land was not easy to come by. I think before his family moved to Cyprus, he was probably part of a clan that came into the promised land with Joshua. And when they conquered the promised land, you remember there are 12 tribes and every tribe but one gets land. The Levites do not get land. Let me read from Deuteronomy 18, one and two. It says this, the Levitical priests, all the tribe of Levi shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's food offerings as their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance as he promised them. So if you're a Levite, you didn't get land. Well, eventually we have Joseph's family, or at least Joseph moving to the island of Cyprus. Perhaps he saves up some money. Somehow he purchases land. And then he sees that the church of Jerusalem, he doesn't even live in Jerusalem, but he's kingdom minded. He sees that the church of Jerusalem has need. He sells a piece of land and he lays the money at the feet of the disciples. And the disciples of the apostles say, oh, we're no longer gonna call you Joseph. We're gonna call you Barnabas, son of encouragement. And that should have encouraged the whole church. But what we have is a couple, Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira have names that suggest that they ought to be generous people. They ought to be in the mold of God, but they don't live out their nomenclature. And they think to themselves, hey, we've got some property. We can sell some property. We can give some money and maybe we will be given new names. 
maybe we'll be given some kind of nickname. And rather than giving for an audience of one, they're giving for an audience of many. Now we have this unusual word. Peter says you have kept back. This word only occurs in three passages. It really occurs here and in Titus 2. And then in the Old Testament, the Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. That's where I'm going to tell you about this word. It's in Joshua chapter 7. And you remember in Joshua chapter 7, the Israelites are taking the promised land. God has given them the land. And they are to go to Jericho and they're going to march around Jericho. And then they're going to cry out. And after a certain number of days, then the walls will come coming down. But before that, Joshua says, everything there is Corbain. It is dedicated to the Lord. But Achan kept something back. That's her word. He kept something back. Everything was Corbain. It was dedicated to the Lord, which meant that nobody could have any of the prophets. Nobody could have any of the spoils of war. All of it would go to God. But you remember Achan found some bars and he found some garments. He kept them. He hid them under his tent. He kept back. What did he keep back? That which was dedicated, that which was pledged, that which was promised to God. That's our very rare, rare word. So what we have here is a word in Greek that has no counterpart in English. So we say kept back. The problem is not that he had land and he sold it. Remember what Peter says in verses two and four? He says, before you sold the land, it was yours. You could do with what you want. The problem is not that they didn't give all of the proceeds. Peter said, after you sold the land, it was still yours to give or not. The problem is this technical phrase, kept back. What it tells us is that Ananias and Sapphira made a pledge to God and the man. Now that's not in the text because actually it is in the Greek language. It's just not in the English text. There's something that has gone on here that isn't readily apparent in the English language because we don't have a corresponding word for kept back. But it actually tells us that Ananias and Sapphira had talked to the Lord and made a pledge that they were going to give it all. And then they had gone to the apostles and they had made a pledge that they were going to give it all. The problem is not that they sold or kept the land. The problem is not that they kept some of the proceeds. The problem is they had promised God and man that they were going to give it all. That is the problem. If they had sold the land and said to the Lord and to Peter, hey, you know, we have some wants. We might even have a few needs. But we're going to give some of what you have given to us to you. I think the Lord would have credited that to them as righteous. But that's not what occurred. They promised one thing and they did not deliver. Pride drove them. I can almost picture the scene. 
Maybe it was an old organ playing I Surrender All. And you can almost picture Ananias, Sapphira's not with him, and he comes in with some cash. Now we know that it would have been shackles, but bear with me. Maybe he has a little bundle, a couple Ben Franklins on the outside and a, a bunch of George Washingtons inside, but everybody can see the Ben Franklins. They're, they're band-aid or rubber-banded together. They look like a lot of money. Or actually, he would have had 13 trumpet-shaped receptacles right between the court of women and the court of men. If he was at the temple, he might have been. Or if he was at a synagogue, it would have had maybe one trumpet-shaped receptacle and you would put your money in it and it would clang and he would make sure he got maybe small little coins. So there's a lot of clanging, a lot of recognition. Maybe he's going to get that new name. But Peter is not pleased. Peter is not smiling. He expects Peter to be happy. He expects Peter perhaps to give him a new name. But instead, Peter says, you have not lied to man. You've actually lied to God. Because remember that kept back is Corbain. It's what's dedicated to the Lord. Yeah, he's trying to get the applause of men, but there's something more going on. He has pledged something to God that he is not following through with. And God takes his life. And I wonder what you think about that. It's just a little white lie. It's a polite lie. It's actually a lie that comes with a benefit. If we fast forward a few years to 1 Corinthians 16, 1 to 4, we know that the Jerusalem church, it's hurting. It's on a shoestring budget. It might be that Ananias and Sapphira had just made it possible for them to reach budget that year. That's possible. That could have happened. But that's not the point. The point is not how much they gave. The point isn't even how much they didn't give. The point has nothing to do with the land. The point is that they made a promise, a pledge, and they kept back what they had said to the Lord. They lied, and God took their life. And I wonder what we think of that. Again, we think it's a white lie, a polite lie. It's a lie that comes with a financial benefit. But sometimes I forget that just one of those polite lies is why Jesus died. Why the second member of the Trinity, fully God, took on full flesh, lived a perfect life, went to the cross, and died and then conquered death and rose again, that if by faith we would believe in Christ and repent, turn from our sin, we would be given eternal life. Sin is a big deal. We have a couple dozen attributes, characteristics of God found in Scripture. Only one characteristic is mentioned three times in a row. He is holy, holy, holy both in the Old Testament in Isaiah 6 and in the New in Revelation 4 and 5. Why it seems to be a little bit overkill for us is because we don't recognize how putrid sin is to the holiness of God. <clears throat> Jeremiah says of my heart and of yours in Jeremiah 17, 9, 
The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? And so we minimize sin, but it was sin that nailed our Savior to the cross. It's obvious why God took their lives. It's because of sin. He also took their lives because it was a budding church. And it appears that Ananias and Sapphira probably have some impact in the church. We shouldn't doubt their salvation, but we should doubt their sanctification. Absolutely. Grace is irrevocable. God doesn't remove their salvation from them. But he was displeased with their sanctification and God disciplines his children, those he calls as sons and daughters. We read in Hebrews 12, 6, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Out of love, God disciplines those who belong to him. For Ananias and Sapphira, this discipline was severe. It's not only Ananias. Three hours later, Sapphira comes in. Peter gives her a chance to come clean. Did you actually sell the land for this amount of money? Is this what you got? Because you pledged. Is this what you got? And she said yes. And Ananias and Sapphira lied not primarily to men, but to God. The Lord dislikes a lack of integrity. He actually hates it. He calls it an abomination. Let me read from Proverbs chapter 6, 16 and 19. You know the passage well. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, and what's the next one? A lying tongue. Hands that send, shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord among brothers. Six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to God, and at least two and possibly three of those seven have to do with a lack of integrity. And according to Patterson and Kim, three decades ago, I doubt things have gotten better. We are a nation that needs to up our game in terms of integrity. We know this, don't we? We know this. Think of every major institution in our country. We now doubt all of them. Think of how dangerous this is for our country. We doubt them all. In the last handful of years, we have a, a phrase, fake news. Some people like that phrase, some people hate it. We all know it's true. Because take three or four news sources from different perspectives and read the same account. Somebody, some buddies are lying. It actually doesn't matter what political persuasion you are. We all know that some of what is given to us are lies. We're a nation that lacks integrity. We lack it at every level. We have politicians of every persuasion that tell us what we want to hear in order to get elected. And then they don't follow through. 
I could go through all the institutions. I thought about doing it this morning. I changed my mind because I figured I'd insult all of us if I did it. But there is no institution. I'll stick with mine. Clergy. We had the Roman Catholic issue. Now we have the Southern Baptist Convention issue. That's a lack of integrity. But you could do that with every institution. Think of the judiciary. The highest of levels, federal or the Supreme Court. No matter what political persuasion one is, one is annoyed that we are now picking justices only based on political persuasion rather than the integrity of the judiciary. That's where we are as a nation. And it's a dangerous place to be. And it starts with the church. 13% in the church believe that the Ten Commandments are still valid today. It is a serious problem. Think of integrity within the church. I just mentioned the Southern Baptist because they're going through a terrible, terrible time. And like so many of the institutions, it's a small number of players who have done horrific evil things, who do deserve to go to justice, who do deserve to lose their careers, absolutely. But then there's a large number of people left who are doing what they're called to do and yet they bear the brunt. And that's what's happening in institution after institution. We have to raise the bar. It's gotta be individuals, it's gotta be a church of incredible integrity. What happens when the church lacks integrity? Then we lack the ability to reach out. I think of preaching and teaching, that's something I do. Every sermon or message has to be preached to myself first. And when it's not, it lacks integrity. I can say with all confidence that there is no preacher or teacher who doesn't preach or teach things that they're not yet living. But if it doesn't cut us to the quick, if we aren't confessing, if we aren't turning and repenting, then we're not speaking with integrity. If we're a lay individual and we're going after a position or an office that does not square with the way we actually live, we're lacking integrity. If we suggest that we are more evangelistic or we serve more often or we give more than we really do and our giving actually is between us and the Lord anyway, it's nobody else's business. But if we're using these things to elevate ourselves, we lack integrity. Christ followers in the workforce ought to have the highest integrity. You remember what Jesus said. He said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything more than that comes from the evil one. Jesus also said, at the judgment, we will have to give an account for every careless word that we utter. Every careless word. Integrity matters to the Lord. When I look at the text... I think that we could say, well, a little decaf maybe, it's a little overkill, right? A little lie and they die. But we've already talked about the fact that God is holy, holy, holy. That is the attribute, the only attribute lifted to the third degree. So if God is holy, why are we still around? 
That's a really good question, right? The question should not be, why did God take Ananias and Sapphira? The real question is, why hasn't he taken us? Well, the attribute that is lifted to the third degree is holiness. Do you know what passage of Scripture is cited more often than any passage in Scripture? It happens to be from the book of Exodus 34, verse 6. This is cited eight other times in Scripture. Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So although God is holy, 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 he is also a merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in love. That's why you and I still exist. But I wouldn't want to walk away from the text and say, you know what? All right, lies are a bad deal, but I'm just going to, I'm just gonna fall upon the grace and the mercy and the abounding love of God. <laughs> I've been there for a while. I'm gonna, I'm gonna stay there and that's not what God wants us to do. God wants us to search our hearts and, and to become even a little bit more. Maybe many of you are men and women of incredible integrity. He still wants us to take the next step to being men and women of integrity. It was Dr. John Murray who asked a question once in writing, and it actually then was published in many other settings. His question was this, is it right to be afraid of God? I wonder what you would answer. I wonder what we would say, is it right to be afraid of God? This is how he answered the question. It is the essence of impiety, that's ungodliness, it's the essence of ungodliness not to be afraid of God when there is reason to be afraid. It's the highest level of ungodliness not to be afraid of God when we have reason to be afraid. Brothers and sisters, you have reason to be afraid. And so do I. And so when we balance Scripture the holiness of God, slow to anger and abounding in love. It is the foolish Christian, it is the Ananias and Sapphira that plays off of the grace of the Lord and is the wise Christian who says, except for your grace, there go I. Empower me by your spirit to turn from sin to acknowledge it and turn from it and to take the next step in my relationship, my walk with you. It is the highest level of impiety, ungodliness, not to be afraid of God when we have reason to be afraid. Every one of us has reason to be afraid. This word fear, phobos, awe, if you like that word better, that's fine. But we ought to be in awe of God and we ought to remember it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of an angry God. So the author of Hebrews tells us it's a fearful thing. And so I want to walk away from the text knowing that God calls me to yet the next step of integrity, veracity, truthfulness in my life. But I also want to walk away from the text remembering that God is holy and he's merciful. 
And I want to hold both of them together and praise and honor this God and ask him to help me to become more and more like he desires me to be. I want to close with just two Proverbs. Proverbs 12, 22 says this. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. In Proverbs 10, verse 9, it adds this. Whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but he who makes his ways crooked will be found out. I suspect that a number of you walk with incredible integrity, well done. A few of us walk in crooked lines. We need to up our game. But all of us, empowered by God's spirit, each and every day need to walk even more and more in integrity because that is pleasing to this great God. Let's pray. Father God, uh, I thank you for the text that you have given us. One that reminds us that you call us to integrity. Lord, I think all of us would have to say at some point we have failed and we have been fast and loose with the truth. Father, we agree, confess that that is sin and ask your spirit to empower us to turn, to repent. And Father, help us to really walk in integrity more today than yesterday, more tomorrow than today. We thank you that you are holy. And because of that, you are the rock and the fortress, a present help in times of trouble. And we thank you that you are merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. We revel in that. But Lord, we don't want to presume upon that. Help us to hold your divine attributes intention one with another and to live for you. It's in the name of Christ we pray, amen.